So, <clears throat> this morning, I was going over my sermon, and I was thinking about how, as I was reading our text for uh, today, I could have gone with what are the qualifications of an elder or a pastor. But I thought the text was more speaking to what is an elder. What is a shepherd of of God or the under-shepherd of Christ? And so I thought the way to best start with this is to give you a description of what sheep are like. Because I think that to understand what the shepherd has to do, you have to know what sheep do. And I thought John MacArthur had a very good description of sheep. So I'm going to share that with you, at least parts of it. First of all, the sheep is the only animal in the world that can be totally lost within a few miles of its home. Most animals are given uh, by God an instinct to find their way back. Actually, some animals can have an uncanny instinct to go home from miles and miles away. And for the most part, that's an element of animal life. Now, within its close range, a sheep has adequate skills. It knows its own pasture. It knows the place where it was born and nursed by its mother. It will invariably rest in the same shade every day. It will sleep in the same fold in the same place. It will stay in the home range more than any other grazing animal, and it won't go very far from that. But if a sheep is taken into unfamiliar territory, it becomes completely lost. It has no sense of direction, no sense of orientation. It doesn't know where it is. It does not know how to get where it's supposed to be. It can't find its way home. And as a matter of fact, if a sheep is lost, it will just walk in a circle and bah continually in confusion and unrest and actually start to panic. Now, the thing about sheep is they're really a beautiful animal. They're generally gentle and humble. And contrary to popular opinion... They are quite intelligent. But they're also prone to go astray. They're actually helpless to find their own food or to find water. There are about a billion sheep in the world. And all of them would soon starve or die of thirst if... It wasn't for thousands of caring shepherds who, like the shepherd in Scripture, goes out and finds that lost sheep because he knows that lost sheep will never find its way back. Sheep will not backtrack. Many other animals will. When Jesus saw the disoriented, confused, hungry, thirsty, spiritual crowd he said they were like a sheep without a shepherd. They didn't know where they were. 
And actually, the prophet Isaiah described lost men as sheep. He said, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, we are all disoriented and lost. We, should, we could never find our way back to the sheepfold unless we have a shepherd to lead us. And sheep, by the way, are very vulnerable. Uh, they are innate followers. They're easily led astray. In New Zealand, about 40 million sheep are sent to market. And they're led there each year by one sheep. That this sheep leads them to their death. Strangely enough, this sheep is called the Judas sheep. And so what this Judas sheep is, it's a, it's a selected, uh, specially selected castrated male who leads the unwitting sheep to the killing floor. And unaware of, of what's going to happen to them, all of these sheep follow this Judas sheep into the killing floor. And at which time, there's a little side door that opens and the Judas sheep goes into that and then it closes again. And as soon as the door is closed, the rest of the sheep are slaughtered. And so sheep can easily be led to their death. Another thing that points us to the need for a shepherd. They not only need to be rescued, but they need to be protected. They need to be guided They need to be provided for. They need a shepherd who can gather them to a safe place, to bring them home, to go after them when they stray, even carry them back when they're hurt. Sheep spend most of their time eating and drinking. they're, They're always thirsty. They're always hungry. And if a sheep was left without a shepherd, they would be extremely vulnerable Because they need clean water. They have to have pure water to drink. They can't have water that's stagnant because stagnant water often has disease that sheep cannot handle. They need to have water that's not either too cold or too hot. They have to have water that's not moving very rapidly. They need still waters. And we see that the psalmist writes about that. He, he says that uh, they need to be led to the still waters. So, the problem is the sheep, unlike most animals, most animals can smell water. They smell it in the air. And they can do that for some distance. Or they can feel the moisture. Sheep can't. Sheep can't find water. They just wander around. No sense of where the watering hole is, even though it's nearby. And so they can tend to die of thirst. And the other thing about sheep is if they're left to graze and there's no shepherd to continually move them on, the sheep will actually eat the ground down to stubble. And when the stubble is gone, they'll start to eat the dirt. And that itself will kill them. 
So unless they are led to green pastures, they will tend to to die. And then the green pastures need to be um, uh, of, of good food because sheep are not discriminate eaters. Most animals are. Sheep aren't. Sheep don't know the difference between a poisonous plant and a good one. They can't tell the difference between oats and hay and alfalfa from deadly weeds. And so you can see that they have a great need for shepherding. And the shepherd needs to be one who is careful and thoughtful and watchful. He needs to be knowledgeable. He needs to be wise. He needs to plan how to move them and where to move them. The shepherd is the key to the sheep's life. Without the shepherd, the sheep would die. And you know, talk about sheep. No other animal is is as defenseless as sheep. They have absolutely no defense. They can't kick. They can't scratch. They can't bite. They can't jump. They don't run very fast. They just stand there. They have no defense mechanism. Actually, when a wolf shows up, do you know what the sheep do? They gather in a circle. And at that point, the wolf just goes, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Picks the one that he wants to, uh, to eat. And so, sheep without a shepherd can't survive. They are more vulnerable and injury prone than any other animal. They have no will to fight. They have no struggle to live. They just give up. And so all of this wonderful imagery of sheep lets us know how much a shepherd is needed. And the shepherding metaphor is used to refer to leaders who have a responsibility of leading and caring for the church. The primary responsibility of the shepherd is to see to it that the flock is well-fed, well-watered. At the same time, his job is to protect the flock from any dangerous enemy, to lead the flock in a safe direction. And it's a big job to shepherd a flock. But it's the job that God has given to leaders. I read an interesting statistic this week. Says one out of eight ministers are thinking about resigning. If that were to happen this week, over 40,000 churches would be without a pastor. And when a pastor resigns, normally what the church will do is they'll find someone who's an evangelist to preach the gospel, they'll find a teacher to fill the pulpit. Or they'll find a missionary that will hype the need for missions. But that doesn't mean that the church has found its shepherd. Finding a real shepherd is one who is called by God. And that's not an easy task. Peter had just told these believers in the first century that they shouldn't be surprised that they'll go through these fiery ordeals when things 
begin to hit. They need solid leaders that can take the flock through the storm. They need shepherds who can maneuver through the dangers. And when they're under fire, they need a strong leader who knows what to believe, how to behave, how to stand. You need someone that knows what to do and how to react. Leaders who run away when things get hot only prove that they're really not true leaders. They're just hirelings. They're just in it for the job. You can see that in John chapter 10. But real shepherds are just that. They are real shepherds. And so with that little bit of insight, let's turn to our text for this morning. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now we need to remember that Peter had just been uh, writing to the prophet the persecuted church. And so it's obvious that when the sheep are under attack, they need someone there. And so Peter comes to the point in chapter 5 after some wonderful teaching in chapter 4 about how to live under persecution. He starts talking about what is their greatest need. Their greatest need is for a strong, godly, effective shepherd. The toughest times demand the best shepherds. So Peter moves from telling about the difficulty of the believer as they're experiencing life to revealing God's will for men who shepherd the troubled sheep. Now, in verse 1, Peter does something that I personally think is is somewhat strange. So let me read it again. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort. I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. I don't know if you caught that, but it says, The elders who are among you I exhort. That this exhortation is to the elders, but it is given in a public letter. It is so that the entire congregation can read this. And this letter was going to be read by several congregations. And so you wonder, why didn't Peter separate that out? Write a separate letter to the elders. If you're not an elder, why would you need to hear this? How does this matter to you? 
Well, it matters because every believer is to be part of a local assembly led by elders. This text and the rest of the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that we should be part of a local assembly. And since that is true, it's important to know who the elders of that assembly are, what they're supposed to do, how you are to respond. Peter gives you the right view of eldership and what their work is. And this should help you to know how to pray for your elders, how to hold them accountable. You need to know your responsibility to the leadership and how it affects you, how it affects the elders, how it affects the whole assembly. And then you will see how this exhortation in verses 1 through 4 relates to the exhortation given to the whole congregation in verses 5 through 10. I hope that you'll understand how vital all of this is. If you want to learn to suffer well, to really give your anxieties to God, to resist the devil, to be firm in your faith, to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, established as an individual and as a church, you need to hear what Peter says about elders. Now, I'm going to tell you that you know, a lot of times I go and I tell you what the Greek word is, and and I'm not going to do that every time. Um, I, I will pick out some Greek words, but most of these have too many syllables for me. But this one doesn't. The word exhort is the Greek word parakaleo. And it indicates an urging or an appeal You probably heard this term used in a different word. The word is paraclete. Have you heard that before? That is a term that is given uh, most time to the Holy Spirit. He is called a paraclete. And it means one who comes alongside. One who calls a person. Coming alongside, encouraging them in their calling bringing them along in a certain direction to urge them, to appeal to them. And that's exactly what Peter is doing right here. He's saying, I exhort the elders. Now, who are the elders? Well, they're spiritual overseers, spiritual teachers, leaders, pastors. Now, the thing that you'll see here is that there are three terms that are used in the New Testament. And we need to keep these in mind. The first one is elder. The second one is bishop. Sometimes it's translated overseer. And then pastor. These three terms are actually used interchangeably. The elder, the bishop, or overseer, and the pastor are really talking about the same person. They're interchangeable, and you can read that in Acts chapter 20 and also other places in the New Testament. But this particular term, elder, that's used here is actually the word presbytos. Does that sound familiar to you at all, presbytos? It's where we get the 
word Presbyterian. So this is the word that's used right here, and it emphasizes their maturity. It's an official title of the office, whereas the term bishop or overseer is uh, the, the Greek word episcopae. Does that ring a bell now that I said Episcopalian? That's where they get that. It's, these names are defining how they are run. What is their emphasis of leadership? And see, that is emphasizing the function of leadership. Episcopate is, is the function of leadership. But then you have the term pastor. It's it's the Greek word paimeno. Uh, it's a hard paimeno. So that emphasizes the function of teaching and feeding. And so all of these are mature men who have an office in which they have to lead and feed. Now, some uh, commentators believe that the term elder refers to the maturity, uh, his maturity in the office. The overseer or bishop refers to his management responsibility in the office. And then the shepherd refers to the ministry responsibility in tending the flock. You see, there's a lot more than just standing in front. It's guiding and leading every aspect of the church. There are a lot of churches who get a little bit out of whack on this, where they think that their whole thing is that the pastor needs to be a good business manager. And I will get to that uh, in a bit. But really, this is the main thing. This is the main thing, to equip, to watch out, to enable you guys to go out and to be able to be strong, to be well-fed. And so, the thing that Peter is, uh, is doing, actually, I don't know if I mentioned the, the office of shepherd refers to the ministry responsibility to tend to the flock. Um, and so the thing is, Peter is putting himself in this same situation. He, now, he's an apostle, which is a greater degree. And, and honestly, there were only the apostles in the, the 12. There aren't modern-day apostles. If you hear that, it's wrong. It's a, a, a position and title that was given only to those who were with Christ. And there was actual very clear distinctions on what an, an, an apostle was. <clears throat> Excuse me, what an apostle was. But here, Peter, although he was an apostle, he was also an elder. And he's saying, I am a fellow elder. I hold the same rank, the same office. I am, I am mature in God and I need to be mature in God as an elder. And the elders are the leaders in the local church who have authority from Christ to shepherd the church of Christ. 
They are to oversee the congregation and to give pastoral care and guidance to the church in general and to individuals in particular. And as you see in verses 2 and 3, they are to gather, to guard, to guide the local flock. And this is a concept that you see in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus. But one of the things is when we hear the term elder, sometimes we think it's it's an old guy. But that's not really true. In 1 Timothy 4.12, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in, in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. It isn't the wisdom and maturity that an older person should have. It is the wisdom and maturity that anybody, even youth, can have. And so the, the pastoral epistles give us these qualifications for the office. And you can look those up on your own. They're in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and also Titus 1, 5-9. And those, that gives you the qualifications what, as you're choosing elders and, and deacons, what are the qualifications for those men? And when you look at those lists, you'll see how they speak of elders as having to be good leaders in their own homes. The other thing that you'll notice is that that word that Peter uses, elders, is, is plural. The New Testament pattern for the church is that there are, is to be a plurality of elders in each church. And within the plurality of elders, there should also be an organizational structure. There will be difference, differences and distinctions in roles. For example, I am the main pastor teacher, but I am an elder. If this was a large church, I, I may actually be the senior pastor. But that this elder is the primary leader within the group. This leader is, is sort of first among equals. He's the one who sets the teaching agenda, agenda. And generally, he's leading the spiritual direction of the entire congregation. Now, this isn't always the case, sadly, because the contemporary model for pastors for the church is actually a business model. In many, many cases, the model for a church is the business model. It's just another business peddling products and services, and the pastor's just a professional or a manager or a salesman of that organization. And this business model, of course, you need to have uh, uh, results. You have to have a pastor that, that gets results in his work, even if it's not biblical. But then you have to look at what are the, the successes of the business world. Well, it's how, how big you are. What kind of profit do you bring in? 
It's sort of the Walmart or McDonald's example of success stories. So when you apply the business model to the church, you tend to measure success by nickels and noses instead of by how these people are growing. We're just a small church. And I think I've told you plenty of times before, um, and actually a couple times uh, some of you, you mentioned oh, Providence Bible Church. First question that comes out, how big are you? How many people do you have? First question. You see, that normally is the first question because that is supposedly, well, you're doing the right thing if you have a big church, if you have a lot of people coming. How much capital do you have? That's another, you know, how, how big a building? But the objectives of true ministry are not the same as those in the business world. And that there are many churches that have adopted these business practices and they're actually killing the church. They're actually just baptizing the world. Instead of being a church that's, that's set apart, the called out ones, the ecclesia, they end up just having a baptized version of the world. And so we see it here in our text. Peter has said that he is an eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He is a witness. The Greek word is martis. And it means to give a testimony. Give proof. Give evidence. There are some ways that you give proof and evidence. And three of those ways. One of them is in a legal sense. You give testimony or evidence. The second is in a historical sense. It's someone who is a spectator of something. Who actually saw with their own eyes. And then in, in an ethical sense, it's as those who are, are, are looking to the genuineness of faith and seeing that there are people who died following the Lord Jesus Christ. Who have put their life on the line. And that gives evidence and proof. And Peter is saying, I've seen it. I've not only seen it in my Savior, but I've seen my Savior go through it, and I've seen His disciples go through it. And so he's going, I am charging you as one shepherd of the flock of Jesus Christ who has actually seen the sufferings of Jesus Christ I'm charging you, care for these people, shepherd these people, watch over the sheep. I'm one who has seen that suffering. Peter was one that actually saw those horrible things. But that didn't prevent him from serving Christ. He knew what would happen to him 
he knew quite, quite well, following Christ. That's why when he was asked at the trial, he denied Jesus three times because he knew what would happen. But you know, he got that resolved. And he's rock solid. He's a rock solid witness for Jesus Christ. And that's one of the responsibilities of an elder. It's to be a witness. To, to say, I have seen this in Scripture. I know what could happen. But I'm going to stay firm. Now, God expects this of all of His leaders. But He also, we, we have to realize that elders aren't perfect men. Peter wasn't. You know, he denied the Lord, but he got that straightened out. He was rebuked by Paul for his doctrinal inconsistencies, but he got that straightened out as well. The best of men are men at best. There's no one that's going to be perfect except our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying that he was faced, facing all these things. But he was mature enough to see it in light of what the Lord Jesus Christ had done. And this is the way it is for every leader. Leaders will fail, but they need to face it. They need to deal with it. They need to keep going. They need to become rock solid in their faith. You know, no matter what any elder suffers, it won't even come close to the suffering of Christ. Being a church leader is is often a thankless job. Actually, at my ordination, I had mentioned who wants it. It's one of those jobs that you really have to have, you know, screw loose to think I want to put myself in that position. You don't get much credit. In fact, you get a lot of criticism. And that's why Peter tells these elders that they need to realize that there's a, re- a wonderful future reward. And that's important. Because Peter already considered himself to be a partaker of the glory of Christ that would one day be revealed. He wanted to say, you know, you fellow elders, know that there's something at the end. There's a reward. But then Peter starts in verse 2 with some of the things that a shepherd is supposed to do. He wanted the shepherd elder to function in an exemplary way. And what makes this tricky is that the flock is not the shepherd's flock. It's God's flock. It literally says the flock of God. It isn't your church and it's not my church. It isn't your flock. 
It's not my flock. It's God's flock. In the book of Acts, we see how the Apostle Paul exhorted elders in Ephesus to shepherd the flock of God. Let's, let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20, and starting with verse 25. Acts chapter 20. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I want to just take a little rabbit trail here. That's actually... Uh, referencing Ezekiel 33. Talking about if you see the enemy coming and you don't blow the trumpet to warn whoever gets killed by the enemy, the watchman has the blood of those people on his hands. But if he sees the enemy coming and he blows the trumpet and they don't hear, and they don't, or they don't listen, and they don't uh, respond. The blood is on their hands, and so Paul here is saying, "Therefore I test to testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock which." among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I want to stop there. There's many people that say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be part of a local body. I don't need to put myself in subjection to any person Any elder, nobody's going to be in charge of me because I've got Jesus. Did you read that? Did you happen to see? It says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherd of God which He purchased with His own blood. To sit there and think that it's all about you. He paid your penalty for sin. But I'll tell you what. He also bought his bride with his own blood. You don't like the bride. Don't tell me how much you like the bridegroom. It cost him his life. That is something that is absolutely missed. That is arrogance. For someone to sit there and say, well, I don't need the church. Then you don't understand what was done on the cross for people individually, but also for His church. And it continues, For this I know, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, From among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everybody day, night and day with tears. The great theologian John Owens said this. He said, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to f- feed the flock by diligently preaching the Word. This feeding is of the essence of the office of pastor as unto the exercise of it so that he who does not or cannot or will not feed the flock is no pastor. Whatever outward call or work he may have in the church. And so we see what Peter does as he talks about what that shepherd or under-shepherd of Christ actually is. And he gives a series of three pairs of negative and positive couplets that instruct a shepherd how to shepherd over God's flock. The first negative that he has here is do not shepherd under compulsion. Ministry is tough. I'll tell you, it is tough. I have personally come under attack many times. It is tough. The people that you love can sometimes turn against you. And this is a weight and a burden like no other. And if you are a leader in ministry and you really try to shepherd the flock, you will learn exactly what Peter is talking about here. That people can hurt you, they can drain you, they can put terrible demands on you. You can get to the point where you're just going through the motions. And that's what under compulsion means. The word compulsion is one that just means you just do something because it's necessary to do it. You just figure out what can you say for a little bit of time. People gather, you send them off their own way, and boy, you got your job done. You don't really put much into it because it really doesn't matter to you. You just go, I'm just going to tell them something. Maybe get them to laugh a little bit. One famous pastor went to a pastor's conference, and he he ended up saying, you know what, when I went there, I didn't see a whole lot of smiling faces. That's because it can be so demanding. Actually, two of my heroes of the faith, they were very famous pastors. They went through extreme bouts of depression. Charles Spurgeon and G. Campbell Morgan, both had horrible depression, as well as A.W. Pink. You know, and it's one of those things where it's it's hard, but it's so critical that the leader keep God before them and keep their heart right with God. The motivation for leadership must always be love for the Lord. Anything else you have to leave. Anything else that needs to be put aside so that you don't lead under compulsion. 
And so that takes us to the positive charge. The shepherd is to willingly lead. The particular bent of this word means that you choose to do something willingly, not because you're forced to do it. Again, Peter knows the threat to a leader. And and in my opinion, this is the key to ministry burnout. You get so bogged down with the weighty stuff that it, it just diminishes your will to serve. Pastors are, people look at them like they're a doctor that you go to when you're sick, or a lawyer when you have an issue, or a social worker when you have needs, or like a scholar who has all the answers, or an entertainer who keeps their interest. Pastors are supposed to solve all your problems. People expect them to visit, study, counsel, administrate, conduct services, console, admonish, marry, and bury. They expect the pastor to be the one who fills the offering plates. They also expect him to do all of this willingly and cheerfully. And if he is in a jovial personality, they go, you know what, we're going to call him on the carpet. You ain't doing it, buddy. That's it. And they'll verbally attack him. Peter knew of these dangers. He knew that the pastor could lose his will to serve. So he says the key to this is to shepherd the flock voluntarily. Not according to your will, but according to the will of God. A key to ministry survival is to keep your focus on the, on the Word of God and the will of God. The next negative that he says is that the shepherd should not shepherd for dishonest gain. I love, I love what the, uh, the King James says, don't do it for filthy lucre. The Greek word used here indicates that this is the motive. What this literally means in the Greek is that the leader should never be motivated and be eager for shameful greed. There are so many charlatans that they, they think, you know what, I am going to go in ministry because of the money that can be made. There are plenty of them. They are in the health and wealth and prosperity doctrine churches. They don't preach the Word of God. They bring little trinkets instead of the gems. The truth of the entire counsel of God. And they have jets. They have fancy cars and all kinds of things. Down in G3, at G3, I met Costi Hinn. You might understand that name. Benny Hinn is his uncle. Benny Hinn is one of those heretics, those charlatans. 
that does everything for money. And I'll tell you what, Costi ended up seeing one day it was revealed to him that that was so off. And he truly became a servant of God. Leaving a fortune. He was saying that when he was traveling with his uncle Benny, they were in hotel rooms that were 50000 plus per night. And that was no problem. He left that. Because he understood what an elder, what a shepherd was to be. The next positive charge is that they should shepherd eagerly. This is a great Greek word. And it means to do something with a passion, with a willingness. Something that was stimulated beforehand. You go, man, I know what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me. I know where He has taken me. And I am eager and willing and passionate about this. The word actually has to do with a burning passion that exists in you before you even do something. This is how we are to shepherd God's people with a burning passion to do it. And if we are going to do something, we ought to do it with zeal and energy and enthusiasm. I don't understand how a pastor, a preacher I should say, can stand in the pulpit and and do it flat-footed. I just want to read the Word of God. This is what the Word says, and you ought to all be happy. You ought to all go out and love each other. You ought to go into the community and just show people your love. Are you kidding me? No! That leader isn't demonstrating the will of God for their lives. So the next negative charge that he gives is the shepherd should not uh, shepherd by lording over those entrusted to you. There's a big difference between humble leadership and dominant dictatorship. There are leaders who crave power. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they were like that. They loved power. They wanted it. They, they pushed people around. They wanted the limelight. There are people that just love to stand in front of people. They love to push them around, drive them around, lead them. Peter saying, never should we shepherd by lording over. We shouldn't have the master-dominant mindset. In fact, the word literally means exercise dominance. Putting people down. And elders must always remember that they are servants, not sovereigns. And so what is the 
positive charge here. It's being examples to the flock. Rather than being a dominant leader, the elder is to be an example. Example is the word tupas. means type. The elder has a responsibility to be a good shepherd type to the flock. Every elder and every leader should be able to say, I am after Christ-likeness and my doctrine, my faith, my behavior. And so if you want to follow me in that direction, you would do well. There has to be a humility for the elders, not just as schoolmasters teaching what we know perfectly. The flock must see that we also sit under the authority of Jesus Christ. We too are learning at His feet. We're following Him. A leader can't drive people to do things that we ourselves would not do. Every member of the church should be able to see their elders as men who have listened to Christ, who are admonished by Christ. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Elders and leaders in the church should do that. They should say, People can see that in me. It should be possible, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, with a straight face, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And finally, in verse 4 of our text, we read, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The chief shepherd does not belong to man. That title is is not man's title. It is, it is the title of Christ. Pastors are called shepherds, but we are under-shepherds of the great chief shepherd. He is the shepherd of his sheep. He is the great shepherd. Pastors and elders should work to glorify him, not themselves. They should set their lives to encourage and instruct people to do the same. And when it says in verse 4, they will, they will receive the crown of glory, this isn't reserved just for preachers. I want to let you know. There isn't a special section in, in heaven for preachers. They will receive the, the crown of glory. But it's a symbolic term of being glorified. We know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what the under-shepherd of Christ should seek to do. And then one day we will be glorified. We'll be free from this body will be free from living in this flesh and we will be in the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the shepherd needs to be humble. I'll tell you what, I am very blessed when after the service, after preaching,
people will come up to me and tell me how blessed they are. I love that, but I don't need the recognition. I don't need praise. As a matter of fact, I get a little uneasy when it seems like someone is just trying to flatter me. There's no room for flattery. I'm but a sinner standing up here telling you about the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord blesses your heart to where you're humbled before him, I'm thankful for that. It is an encouragement to me that I would seek to be faithful. But if it's flattery, I don't need it. Let me tell you one thing. I think this speaks to a congregation that is humble. Because I have never felt once with this congregation when people came up and told me that they really were blessed that that was for any other reason than to encourage me. That takes a humble congregation to do that. And I am blessed by that. There are so many reasons for us to be humble. There are so many reasons why our pride is absolute insanity. And I think as we go over this, I want to mention three things. Why our pride is absolute insanity. And the first truth I want to tell you is the truth of our total depravity. The fact that we were dead in our sins and trespasses unable to believe, unable to make any move toward God. But by the grace of God, He redeemed us. That should kill any pride. That should just foster humility. The second thing is the truth of God's sovereign grace. That ought to make us humble. It's only by His grace that we are spared from destruction that we deserve. And not only that, we're given inheritance that we do not deserve. As we meditate on our depravity and God's sovereign grace, I think we'll be less prone on thinking a whole lot of ourselves. But we need to be constantly reminded that the only good in us is the good that God bestows on us by His grace. And the third thing is the fact that we were saved by faith alone. We're not saved by anything that we do, therefore we have no reason to boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not on your own doing it is a gift of God not as a result of works, lest any should boast. This is a doctrine that's actually on our sign, sola fide. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
that ought to be a truth that severs the root of pride. We ought to only boast in our Lord, boast in the cross of Christ, boast in Him alone. And so let there be humble shepherds. Let there be a humble flock. And God will give us grace. He will give us enough grace to see His beauty and experience His power more and more. He will give us the ability to do those things that we might be used in mighty ways for His kingdom. This little bitty church may be used in mighty, mighty ways. And I pray that so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would equip us as a body of believers, that you would give to us men who seek to witness and shepherd the ability to be the example of Christ to your followers. And Father, I thank you for my fellow elder. I pray that you would give him the deep strength of grace to rest in you alone and to be faithful witness to the grace that has saved him as well. Father, I pray for this body. I pray that you would raise up those who seek to pray increasingly and faithfully for the elders of this church. I pray that you would make Providence Bible Church stronger because we have humbled ourselves in our foundation in Christ to our witness to, to Christ as your people, as your church, as your sheep. We pray that when you return, we will be increasingly more and more like Jesus. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.